Lord, we are grateful for this time. Lord, we're grateful that we can gather as your church, as your people. Lord, we do ask that you would give us ears to hear your word, that you give us minds to understand, Lord, and and hearts to apply your truth. God, may we trust in your word. I pray that you would guard my mouth, that there would be, um, Lord, if unhelpful things, Lord, you would allow those to fade. But God, may your truth stand and may it change us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed in your bulletin the last several weeks the title or the emphasis for today as Christian community. The, the idea of Christian community or how we relate with one another, how we are to live lives together as the church. There's something that we seek to uphold here at Christ Covenant Church and, and are praying by God's grace and endeavoring that we will grow in our community with one another. We're very familiar with the commands. In fact, they're mentioned often. The commands that we see throughout the New Testament to, to comfort one another, to welcome one another, to counsel, to love, to serve, even be devoted to one another. In fact, over 28 times we see throughout New Testament epistles written to churches, we see how we are to respond, to relate with one another, even within this local assembly. It's hard to miss the interconnectedness, really the communal emphasis that is to make up the body of Christ as God designed it to be. And so these commands and descriptions that we read should really serve as as an ongoing call for us to consider our own commitment to this church. And I think the text in this passage before us this morning in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, we're provided really with the ultimate incentive or motivation towards this Christian community, especially as it relates to our own perseverance in the faith, which then demonstrates that that we truly are a part of the Christian community. So let's read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. The writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I think we see in these verses really a repeated concern that's echoed throughout the letter. The writer's appeal was that his audience not turn away from following after Christ that they not drift from belief in the gospel of Jesus and thereby fail to enter God's rest as he then expounds in the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Apparently, based on the repeated exhortations throughout this letter, this temptation to turn back was real for some within the congregation. The temptation to tread an easier path with less difficulty, as we know persecution was mounting. The allure, perhaps, for less public ridicule for faith in this Jesus. And so the author's plea is consistent throughout his letter, if you're familiar with it. It says Christ is worthy. Christ is supreme. He is glorious. Christ is better, he says. And so he writes really to declare intensely. He says Christ is worth clinging to. He is Lord of all. And so he exhorts them in chapter 2, verse 1, Pay close attention, therefore, to the gospel message that you have heard, lest you drift away. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, that 
that Christ as their merciful and faithful high priest, they should consider Jesus. And as you go on, he says, and hold fast their confidence in him by not turning back in unbelief. This is the cry of the book. And we see this really in, in microcosm in these verses here, 12 through 14. I want us to consider in our time this morning three main points from these three verses. In verse 12, the writer wants us to see, I believe, that the danger facing the congregation is real. Secondly, in, in, in verse 13, he wants us to see that the provision against this danger is corporate. And then finally, in verse 14, that the motivation to persevere is Christ. So first of all, look at verse 12. Notice that there is a real danger, a a concerning temptation that he writes about. The warning that the writer constructs in this passage is to secure or arrest sober attention. And so he begins, look, he begins with the words, take care, pay attention, Watch out, or literally look, or even beware. He uses this this attention-gaining or attention-grabbing command to introduce the sharp warning of what the readers were to be on guard against. Namely, he says, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He says, take care concerning this real possibility. Pay attention. Don't be nonchalant about the condition of your heart. He does not assume that his readers are immune from an unbelieving heart. But he warns them of where it can lead. I think we should note here in the context uh, that this warning does not just come out of thin air. If you scan the preceding verses there in chapter 3, you'll see that the author really has been developing this point by referring back, and, and he does this by referring back to the wilderness generation. Right, the children of Israel. We can read about this very um, situation in the book of Numbers and in the book of Exodus. God had promised the Israelites rest in the promised land. We're familiar with that. He just miraculously led them from Egypt, showing them signs of his glory. And now the people find themselves wandering in the desert, and we know they were not happy with God. In fact, there was grumbling, complaining, even after all that he had shown them. And so if you look up at verse 7 here in Hebrews chapter 3, we see the writer utilizing the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, he draws from the book of Psalms, Psalm 95. Psalm 95 summarizes these accounts in Exodus and in Numbers. And he does this to draw the reader's attention to the potential danger of unbelief. And so he quotes Psalm 95. I'm going to read it for you. See if you can pick out, why would he quote this passage? He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. As you hear or scan those verses. Do you see why he quotes this passage to to exhort his current readers or listeners? 
He's wanting to impress upon them the importance and the legitimacy of his warning. That he is not playing when he warns them of turning back. When he warns them of, of a spiritual drift or unbelief which will prohibit them from entering God's rest. The Israelites did harden their hearts. We know that. They did go astray, as this text tells us. And they were banned. The author draws upon this this grave occurrence in their history to solemnly warn his current congregation and then subsequent readers that in the same way that God banned the wilderness generation for their unbelief and for their drifting, so you should take care. Take care, lest an evil, unbelieving heart leads you to fall from the living God. In the writer's mind, this this was a concerning possibility. And so as as a caring shepherd, he implores the hearer to, to beware, lest they follow this same path. He's pleading with his audience, take heed, so the same tragedy does not occur. Before we consider God's provision for guarding against this danger, I think a fairly important question, and maybe it's in your mind right now, a question that we need to ask, who is being addressed here, right? Who's this coming at? Is this a warning for believers? Now, in the same way that whenever a sermon is addressed in a a Christian context, even such as this, as I would address you as brothers and sisters, the author knows that there are very likely those who have not embraced Christ for salvation. They are not truly a part of the believing community, even if they might outwardly appear to be so. And so even as he addresses his exhortation to brothers, we see that in verse 12, it should be granted that there were very likely those who were not a part of Christ, even if a part of the visible congregation at that point. And then evidence of them not truly being a part would be seen in their eventual falling away, in their drifting, whether that was visible or actually only in their heart. But the author here, I believe, is also confident and in fact, speaks to those within the community of faith, those who were trusting in Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Just notice in your text, he refers to them as what? Holy brothers. Again, if you keep reading in that same verse, as those who share in the heavenly calling. And then here in verse 12, he reiterates, he's addressing brothers. Take care, brothers. I think we draw from this that Christians needed to hear this warning. For those claiming to have faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, there is within a capability of an evil, unbelieving heart gradually leading one away from Christ. Do we believe that? Can that be right? You might ask, what what about eternal security? What about the perseverance of the saints? Does this mean that a true child of God can lose their salvation? I think that's a question that hits us as we read this. I don't believe that's the case. In fact, I would say no. And we'll consider that in a moment. But for now, we know that the Scriptures say that, that a child of God is secured by the promise of God. We sung about that this morning. We know he preserves his own. Those whom he called, right? He also justified. Those he justified, he also eventually glorified. In fact, he did glorify. 
This is an unbreakable chain and promise. Those who were predestined will be glorified. We know that. In fact, in 2 Timothy, we can draw comfort from the fact that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful to his own. He who began a good work will what? He'll perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We're aware of these and other promises in the Scripture that speak to the security of genuine believers. But we are also shown in Scripture that genuine children of God do persevere to the end. They do continue in faith as broken as it may be. You see in Matthew and Mark and throughout, those who persevere to the end will be saved. And so he says, take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I think it's a subtle temptation within all of our hearts here this morning that when we hear or see or read evil, unbelieving heart, our natural inclination is what? It's to point outside of ourselves, right? We don't want to look here. We want to look out there at those people. But this text does not allow that. The verse says, Brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away. This is a call for followers of Jesus, for those claiming faith in Christ. This is a call to examine our hearts. He says to continually take heed, as the tense of this verb would indicate. The danger of unbelief in our hearts begins gradually, perhaps as as just seeds of unbelief. And isn't that what sin ultimately is? The doubting of God. Every temptation to sin presents with us the opportunity to either trust in God and His plan the joy and the satisfaction that comes from following him or to believe the lie that sin holds out for us. When we look for sin to satisfy or to gratify our flesh, this is an act of unbelief in our God. So our whole life is described as a fight for faith, a fight to believe the promise of God versus the fleeting pleasures of sin that entangle and eventually destroy. The writer says, take heed. The danger of falling away is is real. It happens through gradual disbelief in God, and it indicates that we were never part of his own. You know, in a few weeks or maybe a a month or so, Tom will be continuing through the book of Matthew and and coming to chapter 7, where Jesus warns that, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. It says, on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, cast out demons? Did we not do all of these things in your name? We know what Jesus says. Depart from me. I never knew you. Perhaps you find yourself this morning in what you would describe as a a season of doubt or, or a spiritual apathy, which true believers can experience. You might even recognize that your heart has strayed from from trust in Christ as the the storms of life or, or the battles against sin rage. Falling away from the living God, walking away from Him begins in a gradual manner, as the phrase indicates, leading you to fall away. 
One does not generally wake up in the morning and decide to, to denounce faith in God. It doesn't work that way. We know that. It's a gradual questioning, a gradual hardening. Perhaps within us an increasing negligence to fight sin, accommodating just a little lust or, or occasional anger. John Owen, a Puritan, asserts that the deceitfulness of sin is seen in that it is modest in its first proposals. But when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. Modest at first, but hardens and then kills. I think it it, it behooves us to ask, have we become accommodating to certain sins? Allowing them to linger in our heart Maybe just slow to flee. It's not that big of a deal. If you find yourself wavering in this battle, I'd encourage you along with this passage, take heed to your heart. Cling to Christ. Look to Him. So we see, first of all, the author warns us that that there's a real temptation. Real temptation that exists. None here are exempt from this warning to take heed and to examine our hearts this morning. He secondly asserts that the provision or the remedy against this danger is corporate. God's provision in our lives against this drift involves more than than just you and God. Look at verse 13. He says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because of the danger to drift, the divinely inspired writer here commends this divinely established remedy. And he says, exhort one another every day. The antidote for fighting against sin and against unbelief that creeps or potentially creeps into our heart involves each other. In fact, as odd as it may sound, you are the prescribed antidote for your brother's potential unbelief. He's just painted this dreadful picture of the destruction of the Israelites And he sketched into that picture the possibility of those claiming to know Christ falling away from the living God. And he says, but. He uses this word to paint a strong contrast. And he starts it here in verse 13. Rather than a sinful, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, here is God's provision. Exhort one another. Or more precisely, keep on exhorting or encouraging one another. This activity is something that the author models for us throughout the entire book. In fact, he closes the book uh, as he draws to a close in chapter 13, 22. He refers to the entire letter as his exhortation, his word of exhortation to you. This is what he's been doing. So as the author exhorts his flock to continue in faith, he commands his readers to do the same. The word here to exhort one another means to strongly encourage. And in the book of Hebrews, every time this word is used, the aim is always to promote or to incite continued belief. One author in commenting on this verse writes this. He says, Deteriorating community increases the threat of apostasy. Because it is through community members speaking the word to each other that the community's faith is maintained. And so, people of God, as an invitation to, 
to faith-filled vigilance against a hardening heart. We are to exhort one another so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I, I think we can draw just a few practical implications from this. First of all, and clearly, this remedy is going to involve interaction with one another, right? In fact, it will most often involve our words to each other. For us to obey this command, we we will be required to speak with each other. And beyond that, to speak with intention to one another. This is an explicit call, really, people. An explicit call away from isolation. An explicit call from cherishing at all costs even our own privacy to some measure. From just a self-orientation. As a part of the same body of Christ, your business is my business and vice versa. It's clear, I think, from the desired effect that this is have, to have, not to be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin, that the words that are spoken, the words that he's talking about here, are of a spiritual nature. The exhortation he has in mind is, is not simply regarding jobs or, or upcoming um, events in our lives, although those aren't to be shunned, right? Those can be used to a greater end. But the words that you are commanded to speak to one another in this verse are to promote within your brother, to promote within your sister a desire to stay alert, a desire to keep beholding Christ, to keep trusting him. These words will include warnings against sin. These words are going to include encouragements and comforts when the trials of life threaten your confidence in God's goodness. They'll seek to build faith in potentially dark seasons of doubt, which we all experience. And we're intimately aware of those dark seasons of doubt because we are our brother's keeper. You know, hanging out with Christians is a great thing to do. Being around each other even on Sunday mornings and and catching up is good to be encouraged, but, but we must know that that falls short of obeying this command, this provision and protection. Rather, as we, as we grow in humbling ourselves before one another, as we grow in opening our lives to one another, we must seek to speak the truth in love, ready with humility to receive these words of exhortation so as not to be hardened. It's a good reminder from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. He just finished speaking to to faith in Jesus Christ and how he is the sole, um, through his word, the sole source of our salvation. And he says this, God has put this word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's words to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. I think that's true. So we need to ask, how would we characterize our relationships within this body? What will it take for this type of interaction described here, what will it take for it to grow among us? May God help us 
in this matter. A second practical implication, and much more quickly here, is that this should become a regular practice. He says, exhort one another when? Every day, as long as it is called today. He uses this phrase here for emphasis. It's to be day by day by day. As long as it is called today, it's to become a regular part of our routine. Constantly looking for, in fact, giving and receiving spiritual encouragement through mutual conversations between us. This doesn't mean that we can't talk of anything else, right? But as is implied, even in the command, we must need this every day. Sin must be this deceitful. And if so, mutual exhortation must be a growing habit, I think is what he's saying here. An increasing pattern in our lives that, we are, that we're working into our already busy lives. As I ponder your faith and as you ponder mine, heeding this command is going to involve more interaction than, than just Sunday morning. Just, just this meeting. So I think we need to ask, how concerned are you for your sister's faith? How concerned are you for your brother's continuance and his belief? And who are you offering this provision to? This word of encouragement. Applying this daily, it, it, it assumes there's a genuine concern. It assumes that I have a spiritual knowledge. Obviously not with everyone to the same degree, but, but with some. I think a final practical point brought out in these words are the words that were to speak to each other are a spiritual necessity. The implication, I think, as we read this is that without these words, without regular heart-targeted words that we're giving and receiving, hardening by the deceitfulness of sin is possible. He says, exhort one another, do this, Why? so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The truth is, we are often blinded. Is it not true? We are often blinded to our own sin. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We're often the last to know it. We need concerned brothers and sisters in Christ who know us well enough to be able to graciously pour into our lives, calling attention to our blind spots calling for faith through the waves of doubt that crash into our lives. What a lofty purpose this is for our conversations. What a, what, could there be a, a higher goal for our relationships? And I think he calls us, he calls each of us to participate on behalf of each other, on behalf of those within our body to spur on greater faith in Christ. As you consider your relationships and your conversations, even amongst this body, how can we begin to move in this area of spiritual necessity? Just encourage you to prayerfully consider how we might grow in this, how your words might be used to, to fan the smoldering flame of faith in a struggling heart. By His grace, even through this word, may God help us to recognize our need for growth. And then as we go to the gospel and seek forgiveness and then look to, to foster this type of care within one another. May that be our prayer. Before we close with a, a last brief point from the text, let me just say that, that this type of, of faith-building mutual exhortation and mutual care is one of the main reasons why uh, we value care groups here at Christ's Covenant. While we want to encourage this, this type of community to be developing, 
within our marriages and with our families, without a doubt. We also pray that these relationships, these life-sustaining relationships, will grow amongst the, the spiritual family, will grow amongst the, the people of God, the church. I think John Piper is instructive for us here. I, I just want to read a short paragraph from one of his talks. He states this, Here is a final word to all of us, to the single and the married. God did not design marriage to replace the church. He didn't design families to replace friendships. Every married man needs believing men in his life. Every married woman needs other believing women in her life. The young people need other young people. And the single people need married people and single people in their lives. Families are not substitutes for any of these relationships. The blood-bought church of Christ is the new supernatural family. So he says single people, married people, old, young, rich, poor, every ethnicity, find brothers and sisters. Marriage is temporary. Parenting is temporary. But the church, the new family, is eternal. So I just encourage you, if you're not involved with people in faith-building ways, I'd encourage you to intentionally move in this direction. And also, just as a means to that, to prayerfully consider joining a care group. We can start to foster this. Care groups, they're certainly not um, the only means for this fellowship. I don't mean to indicate that. If you're in one, you know that they are not um, automatic in making these be established, right? But it is a structure that is in place that, that the elders have agreed is, is vital for our spiritual life here. So if you're not a part, I just encourage you even, even to, uh, to talk with me about that if you want more information on how those are put together and, and if you want to consider being a part. The truth is the ongoing antidote, the remedy to our oft-wavering allegiance to Christ is mutual back-and-forth exhortation between brothers and sisters. So I think we see from this text that, that there is a real temptation temptation for our hearts to drift. We've also seen that the divine provision to fight against this is corporate. It's one another. Finally, I, I want to notice just briefly that the motivation for all of this is Christ. Here in verse 14, the author essentially repeats a verse that has led him into this discussion. This discussion of falling away. He repeats verse 6. And this is, I think this is important for us to understand the passage that follows, these 7 through 14 verses. We see verse 6. If you look up there, verse 6 sandwiches uh, with 14, all that takes place there in the middle, this discussion of hardening and going astray. He states in verse 6, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. Therefore, and he launches into this Old Testament example of those who, who did not hold fast, but fell away. And then in verse 14, he says almost the exact same thing. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We will not be able to give full attention to this verse because of time this morning, but what I want us to see is that the motivation to take heed, the motivation that he gives to pay attention and in fact to exhort one another is all with an eye to the end. It's all with an eye to holding firm to that end. He starts with this sure promise that we share in Christ. Or literally, we have become partakers of Christ. 
for those that get excited about grammar, which maybe that's not a lot of us, but the grammar here is intentional. The grammar here is intentional. It's critical. He says, we have become. He uses, uses a, a tense that, that indicates something that has taken place in the past and now carries over. It has ramifications into the here and now. We have become partakers of Christ. We share in Christ and are full participants in all that he has done for us. We share in his heavenly calling, he says in chapter 3, verse 1. uses the same word. We share in his deliverance from death. All the benefits, including forgiveness of sins and our standing before God, are ours in Christ. We have that, he says. Knowing that we have become partakers is important for us to grasp to see, especially when considering the last half of the verse, right? If we indeed hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. Notice what he doesn't say here. He does not say, if we hold our confidence firm to the end, then we will become partakers of Christ, right? That would be very bad news for us. We'd be seeking to earn or contribute to our salvation, which we cannot do. No, rather the point is by holding fast, by holding our original confidence as genuine believers do because of Christ at work within us, we give evidence. We give indication. We demonstrate that we have become partakers of Christ. And this through faith, as he makes clear throughout the book. Perhaps you are here today and and have a question about that faith. Perhaps you you know you are apart from Christ. I would encourage you. Speak with one another today. Inquire about that faith. Look to Jesus. Because conversely, he is saying, if one does not hold fast and persevere and gives in to an evil, unbelieving heart, they indicate that they never were a partaker of Christ. Persevering in faith and hope Holding fast to your confidence in God is not a way to keep from losing your standing with Christ. It's a way of showing that you have a standing with Christ. So as the author here, in seeking to spur on our faith, he exhorts those who share in Christ to take care. Cling to the end. He says, hold your original confidence firm as God is at work bringing about that completion. By continuing to look to Jesus, we confirm that, quote, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, he says in verse 10. We are not of those who shrink back or are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve our souls. Brothers and sisters, we are prone to wander. You know that. Our hearts are prone to waver from Christ. The temptation in our hearts is real. The provision that he lays out here is corporate. In order to hold firmly in faith, we need faith-building and sin-fighting words from those sitting all around us, just as they need you. May God, from this text, use this word really to impress on our souls the spiritual necessity of Christian community. Let me pray for us.